Chefs Without Restaurants, episode 64 with Kimberly Schaub. You're the executive for a reason. You have the skills. So why the hell are you holding back people who could come up and make your job easier? You know, like there's there's obviously the the good part of developing the younger person so that they feel empowered, they build a skill and all those things. But frankly, if you don't have to do those things, <laughs> why not farm it out, you know, and, and spend fewer hours doing it yourself? The other is the yes chef mentality and attitude has to go. It has to retire with whoever's got the last of that yes chef mentality. That's not the mentality of the future. It's not what's going to take our industry into the next decade or century. You know, we need to drop that and look at the talent that's around us, irrespective of their their look and sound, you know, of those people. The good ideas are being missed constantly because we're not listening to the right voices. We're listening to a very homogenous pile of people all the time. This is the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast with your host, Chris Spear. Each week, I'll be speaking with food entrepreneurs and people in the culinary industry. If you're interested in learning more about our organization dedicated to helping people build and grow their food businesses, look us up on the web at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Chefs Without Restaurants. Now, enjoy the show. On the podcast this week, I have Chef Kimberly Schaub. She spent much of her culinary career in the research and development field, working for companies like Beecher's Handmade Cheese and Bulletproof 360. She also spent some time with the Modernist Cuisine team and contributed to their book, Modernist Cuisine at Home. Currently, she's doing business development for Griffith Foods. She also has a website and podcast called Peas on Moss. Some of the things we discuss on this episode are getting into the culinary R&D field, knowing when it's time to move on, growing your staff, the yes chef mentality, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening and have a great week. Welcome everyone. This is Chris with the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. Today we have Chef Kimberly Schaub. She's a research chef and she has a podcast called Peas on Moss. Welcome to the show, Kimberly. Thank you so much, Chef Chris. It's so good to be here. Um, It's fun to have been in touch for a while, to have a little overlap in Seattle, and then to both have podcasts. This is fun. I'm, I'm so excited to be on. Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. Yeah, you know, what you're doing is well within the realms of Chefs Without Restaurants, right? You know, there's, I've said it all the time, there's so many people doing very interesting, cool things in the food world that just don't happen to be working as a line cook or an executive chef in a freestanding restaurant. And you're another great example of that. Thank you. Yeah, I um, I went to culinary school in Seattle in 2010 to 2011. And um, I actually went in with the hope to become a research chef. I was volunteering at the Pike Place Senior Center and um, had volunteered with a chef there who was asking me what I was wanting to do. And I was, um, I think I was peeling potatoes at the time. I was like, well, what are you trying to do with your life? You know, that type of kitchen conversation. And um, I was like, oh, I want to be an RD chef. And I was thinking registered dietitian chef because I have a nutrition science background, but he misheard me and thought I had said R and D chef, research and development chef. And so he spent the rest of our shift talking about how amazing it was to have worked for McCormick back in his day. And I literally came home from that, that work day saying, okay, I think I want to change it all. I'm I want to go be a research chef. I don't know what that means. 
but it sounds amazing. And, you know, in my heart, it felt like someone had turned on the lights when I didn't even realize a room had been dimmed to start with. Um, so when he suggested go be a research chef and I started to look into what that meant, um, every component about that was something I got more and more excited about, you know, getting to create menus, develop food products that go onto grocery store shelves, you know, whether those are large national stores or really small ones, all of that just really was exciting to me, the food science behind it, the why behind it. Um, and that, that, questioning why or how something works is something that probably annoyed all of the chefs I cooked for. Um, Cause it was like, well, why do we do it that way? And how do we know when this is done? But that type of question is the mindset that you need to be a successful research chef in my opinion. So you already had a degree in nutrition and then being a chef. So then what does it take to become a R and D chef? It takes an opportunity um, you know, and I've been thinking about this a lot, especially in, you know, our recent years talking about the, the things that hurt in our food industry, whether that's the work culture that we've built over centuries in kitchens, or uh, it's the very immediate and acute issues of COVID and how food service is being affected. Getting into the research chef career field is an opportunity that's very viable to anyone with a culinary background. Um, Skills that are needed and ways to get in, like I said, an opportunity. Another research chef got me in the door. Uh, but we have to find a way to make that uh, more effective. So culinary programs um, and educational programs or certifications would be my recommended way to get in. There is a professional association called the Research Chefs Association, and that was founded by ACF chefs who worked in research chef roles who didn't feel that the ACF was actually meeting their needs and helping them network among each other. So they spun off this other group called the RCA, a research chefs association 25 years ago. So for those interested, I would say go to the research chefs association website, which is culinology.org. Um, and look at the information that they offer there. They have a certification program. There are loads of textbooks that they tell you to read. Um, and then start putting it out there. You know, I have, you and I both have friends who work in research chef roles, and I would say talk to them and find out how those individuals got into the field. Um, a food science background is handy, but it's not a showstopper not to have a science background. Um, but finding a company that's hiring a research chef or hiring a food technologist is the key. You can start Googling those terms and you can kind of see where those people are and um, what the job requirements are. For a while, I thought I wanted to do that. I remember looking at courses. I think Rutgers was offering courses and a lot of these things. You know, I got into molecular gastronomy as many chefs did a decade or so ago. Um, and then I ended up going to uh, FCI and just a, taking a week-long course with Dave Arnold and Nils Norin, which was amazing. I mean, it opened my eyes to things I had never seen, never done. It was really fun, but then it almost reignited my passion in food. Not that I had lost it, but it just made me want to be a better chef and then focus those skills back into being a day-to-day -day chef and not getting into kind of the, the process of doing that R&D kind of stuff. I think that exploration is so vital because to your exact point, as you start to explore what the food science looks like behind the scenes, 
what the day-to-day life looks like for a research chef, you might find that that's not actually what you want to do with it. But it's helpful to see what that field looks like. I worked for Sodexo, uh, my last job, and our home office is in Gaithersburg, which is about half an hour from here. And one of the cool things I got to do was go work in their test kitchen. But we went in and in the course of a week, I worked on maybe three recipes. So like the crab cake recipe for all of Sodexo Global is my recipe. But that means, but I mean, you know what that means. It means like you're weighing everything. You're also logging everything in volumes, in volume, you know, cups pounds, uh, and then you're cooking it at 325, 350, 375, 400. You're trying every, it's like, wow, I literally made crab cakes eight hours a day for five days. That's the thing, right? It's exhausting. Recipes in, in the week. And so it sounds like, well, what did you do the other five days? You know? And it's like, well, actually I did that recipe 45 times in one day, you know? And it's like, yeah, that's, that's product development is, there's the ideation side, which is coming up with the cool things you can do with these ingredients. And then there's the, the first time that you get to the bench or the stove and you do that recipe once. Say it's the version that you learned in school. It's a version that you learned at the first couple of restaurant jobs. You have a cutting of the product where other um, stakeholders join the conversation and they basically tear your crab cake apart. And they're like, well, you can't do it this way and you can't do it that way and you can't include um, freshly chopped celery because, you know, across the market, we're not going to have the same celery, you know, in California versus Thailand versus wherever the other, um, facilities are that you're going to be serving. So you have to find a way to standardize all of those ingredients and it gets mindlessly repetitive at times. And I'm, I'm definitely not whining about the job, but that is the reality of it, which is you make a recipe, you work to make that bulletproof. And then you find all of the ways that all of the other teams could possibly jack it up. And then you have to make it bulletproof for that. It's the kiss and um, the, like the bulletproofing of all of it is where our souls usually go to die. (laughs) And I think a lot of us naturally do that as chefs in restaurants, you know, that same dish before I even took it there, we had had on our menu for nine years. So as the executive chef, you know, you'd look at it one day that one of your cooks might say, what did you do? Tell me everything. And then it's like, oh, you cooked it at 375. It probably needs to go to 400 or something. So you're tinkering with it incrementally. Maybe you're making a change once every week instead of four changes in a day. But yeah, I I enjoy that. I mean, especially with baking, because I'm not naturally a sweets, pastry kind of chef. So getting into, I started doing focaccia, like everyone started doing bread during quarantine. So for me, it was taking very detailed notes and weighing everything on a gram scale, taking all temperatures. So, you know, I know that I like my water at 110 degrees for my pizza doughs, my focaccias and everything. And that's like kind of anal, but that's just how it is. And knowing exactly to the gram, how much I like of each kind of flour. And now I have this bulletproof recipe down that I can post on my website and say, if you've got a scale and a thermometer, you're going to be able to replicate this. That's awesome. And that is that that made me think of two different things. Um, when I was cooking at um, Stofsky's on Mercer Island, I would stage in the bake shop um, in the morning before my shift started. And I was asking the baker who was training me at the time, you know, how much effect does humidity have on the product that you're making? You know, we, we crank out bagels every day. And he said, I know it sounds like an excuse, when the baker tells you that his bagels are shit today because of the humidity, but it's legit. 
That's very interesting. So I guess maybe the recipes aren't necessarily bulletproof then, right? I don't think you can plan for everything. Um, and that's some of the irony of my podcast name, Peas on Moss, is that it's mise en place backwards because with despite all of the plans that we make, things go sideways anyway. But in the end, the shift gets finished, dinner gets served, a product gets to the market, even if it wasn't exactly as we planned it to be. So you worked at Modernist Cuisine for a little bit, is that right? Yeah. Um, after, I guess, a year in restaurants in Seattle, um, I was still in culinary school. And one of the chef instructors, Sarah Wong, um, saw that there was an inquiry for a prep cook at Modernist Cuisine. And she came and pulled me out of class, which is never a great feeling when a chef pulls you out of class because you're like, oh, man, what did I do? She's like, I found the job for you. And you should apply for it. Um, and it was to prep cook at Modernist Cuisine. Um, so I did my stage there and then um, was offered full-time work for the Modernist Cuisine at Home book. They were finishing the pastry chapters and some of the highfalutin um, technology pieces. And so I got to be part of those um, and learned a bit of food styling along the way. Um, you actually get to see my hands in the pie chapter of the Modernist Cuisine at Home book. And you've never been more self-conscious of like different body parts of yours until they show up in a photo. (laughs) And it's like, oh, yeah, I have short stubby fingers or whatever it is. (laughs) That's really cool. I have the book. I'll have to go through and find find your hands there. (laughs) Yeah, a few of us um, got really lucky. And I was just so, again, another chef got me into that opportunity, which I think is our responsibility as um, professionals who are further along in our career fields is to identify and bring along and open up doors for younger up and comers to um, say, Hey, you have, you have the raw material here to be amazing. I believe in you. It's going to be a stretch, but go for it. You know, what's the worst case scenario. You don't get the job. You know, the project is more difficult. You might have to go cry in the walk-in for a second and then come back out and kick ass because ultimately I know you've got it in you, right? And that's what they did for me at MC. And I just, I tried my best, ran with it as hard as I could as soon as I got in. Wow, what a cool experience. They're, you know, such pioneers in not just cooking, but food science. So doing what you do, I'm sure that you'll always remember that, right? It was a really gourmet um, experience of um, a lot of the food science that we do and use every day. So um, spherification is super sexy on a plate, but honestly, we use that when we talk about sequestering ingredients or sequestering minerals, um, which is what causes that kind of skin formation around a sphere, is a sequestering of components or controlling where they actually start to um, network or mesh together. And that type of technology or that type of understanding is something I've used in my cheese science job, um, understanding why cheese sauces get gritty. Your calcium has, has essentially particulated out, and that's what you're feeling on your tongue. And that knowledge, that ability to question what's going on here is something that Modernist Cuisine really leaned into and invited um, gourmets to get involved in. And I think that's where I'm really what I like to do with say molecular gastronomy, right? Like the spherification was fun, kind of fun, whiz bang, but I'm not into the alinea type stuff. It's like, I think a fluid gel, you don't necessarily know a technique or how to stabilize a vinaigrette. So it's not anything that a customer would necessarily see and say, wow, that's some high tech technique. It just really serves the purpose as opposed to making little caviar pearls. 
You know, that's a good question or really kind of a good um, line to draw on the sand as far as where does molecular, molecular gastronomy or modernist cuisine, whatever technology term we want to use, where does that gourmet sort of lack of application in the real world end and the actual application begin? I think that the attitude behind what happens at uh, modernist cuisine and that um, Chef Grant pursues is the how and why of what's happening and how do we manipulate that and give the guest a certain type of experience. But the attitude of how, the, the questioning of how is where we should all stay. It's how did that work? How do I problem solve this? Because um, in manufacturing, if you're looking at 800 gallons worth of product start to burn, you better know how to stop that from happening or you've just lost $60,000 just like that. That's a big loss. I bet nobody wants to go tell their boss that they just lost $60,000 worth of product. Sure notes. <laughs> uh, I can count the couple of times that I've had that moment of like, <gasps> you know, but then that's where the culinary experience kicks in because we've also always had that experience on the line during a shift either because somebody doesn't show up, you burn the shit out of something. You, that was the last thing and you just dropped it on the floor, you know, whatever it is. And then you're like, well, I still have to serve this. I still have to give the guests an experience. So let's just pivot and move on. And then we can, we can figure out what actually happened, what the core problem was later and prevent that from happening next shift. So what was your first job as a research chef? Like once you kind of moved on from modernist cuisine and started getting out there on your own doing your thing, what was that? My very first job as a titled research chef was for Beecher's Handmade Cheese. They're an artisan cheesemaker in Seattle. The first cheese um, manufacturing actually was built in the Pike Place Market, and they do a cheddar-style cheese. Um, and I say cheddar-style because it actually has more fat content than a standard cheddar cheese, um, and so the FDA wouldn't permit calling that cheddar. So they call it flagship cheese. I've heard about that, but I didn't realize that that was the reason that they actually couldn't call it cheese because or cheddar cheese because of that. Yep. It's, I think cheddar cheese is 32 to 33% milk fat and Beecher's handmade cheese cheddar is usually 33 to 35. So it's a richer cheese and you can't call it cheddar as a result. Interesting. I didn't realize cheese had such strict designations here in the U S like a lot of foods in other countries do. Oh yes. Uh, Google FDA standards of identity. It's very entertaining. <laughs> it's probably like reading our local Department of Health regulations that we have here. It's like an 800-page <laughs> manual that nobody ever really reads. It's true. Eat some coffee beans or brew yourself a really strong French press and then read through it. <laughs> and speaking of coffee, you also worked for Bulletproof 360, correct? That's correct. Yeah, I was their first food scientist that they hired. Um and I actually took that job after uh, Lundberg Family Farms. I was organic rice in California. Then I was looking for a way to get back to the Seattle area. And I found the senior scientist job. And if you haven't noticed, I haven't talked about a food science background because I don't have one. I have a nutrition science and culinary background. Um, but I wrote my cover letter to the Bulletproof um, scientific group about why I don't need a master's of food science to do this job. And so I got it. So clearly they believed me. Um, and I ran their beverage line for them. So um, we formulated a bulletproof coffee for shelf sta stability to go either in the refrigerated or the ambient shelves um, at grocery stores. So that was a three-year endeavor. Um, and a lot of people got involved in the project. Um, 
yeah, but that was that got to be my project in the end. That's pretty cool. I've tried that a couple of times. I'm actually off of coffee right now. So we're going to see how that does for, I know, like the look on your face, coffee, I have a love and hate relationship <laughs> with. Um, I can go two or three years drinking it and then just like have a bad run of health. And it's one of those things that doesn't mm-hmm. do me well all the time. So I'll give it up for three or four years and then I'll ease back into it, seem to have a good relationship with coffee and then give it up again. I mean, having lived in Seattle, my wife was actually a barista and ran a number of coffee shops in Seattle. So we've always had it near and dear to us. And a good friend of mine who was on the podcast also has his own roasting business. And we have uh, coffee shipped to our house every month, but I'm not partaking anymore. It's kind of sad. You're going to have a buildup of coffee, but there are other uses for it. Um, and honestly, decaffeination processing is getting better. The Swiss water method is still considered the gold standard of it all. But um, yeah, and coffee is not a um, compound or rather caffeine is not a compound that is necessary for good health. I find it very necessary for staying awake at times, but um, my consumption after Bulletproof definitely went up. Um, you know, there's a theory that butter coffee is supposed to help the or help control the effect of the huge spike and crash of caffeine, but it really depends on your body and some people's bodies just can't can't do it or shouldn't be as reliant as they are. <laughs> yeah, that's me. Um, so what are you doing now, actually? What's your current position? It's a great question. So I've actually completely hung up the apron or the chef coat, um, the thermometer and the scale. Don't don't hang those up. But, you know, (laughs) Um, I have moved into a business development role with a company called Griffith Foods. It's the largest seasoning company that no one has ever heard of from my perspective. Um, We serve a lot of household name companies um, across the nation and internationally. Um, They started in the meat industry, providing um, seasoning blends for sausage makers in um, the Chicago area, and then have have, uh, expanded beyond that. And I'm on the snack team and work on organic product. And that's that's fun because I get to actually stretch a lot of the um, clean label training that I learned at Lundberg Family Farms, a lot of the organic certifications and things that I've learned along those lines. And I'm on the other side of the table this time. So I'm working with chefs and product developers and food scientists. And they're asking me for materials. And so um, it's kind of an MBA crash course. It's kind of an ego check to see whether I can, um, you know, not, not deal with the um, new voice of imposter syndrome that's coming up um, or rather to deal with it and not listen to it. Um, but it's, it's honestly, it's very challenging. I think I'm lucky because my boss is also a research chef and CIA trained um, culinarian. And so he knows what that is to have left the bench and the kitchen and um, still maintain our identities and feel like we can still serve the food community, but in a very different way than before. Yeah, you talk about imposter syndrome, and that's something we talk about on the show a lot, because I think so many people, not just in the food world, but they're tied to their career and what their training is. And a lot of people I talk to, like, we're not real chefs, right? Like, when you tell people you went to culinary school, you know, you have a chef background, and then you tell them what they do, what you do, they kind of think like, oh, that's not really a chef, like you're doing this other stuff. And I've heard that over and over from a number of the people who've been on my show, just that feeling, not that they even have it themselves, but then they start talking to people and they let these people make them feel badly that they're not a real chef, right? I'm sure you 
have come into that yourself a little bit, I'm sure. Absolutely. I mean, you hit that right on the head. It's, it's a, it's a challenge, you know, because we spend all of this time among other chefs saying, Oh yeah, you're such a badass because you cooked at this place and you worked for this guy or gal. And we, um, we respect each other based on the scar tissue that we have. And I think that's a problem in and of itself. Um, you know, the, the voice of imposter syndrome is extremely internal, you know, literally nobody else looks at it or hears it. Right. So when I look at you, Chris, I don't think, Oh, he's a husband. He's not even a chef anymore. It's like, no, he's had a chef experience. He's not doing that now. He's finding other ways to serve the community. Um, and so, so that my doubting your qualifications never even comes to mind. Right. And that's probably the case for all of the other guests that have been on your show none of us would actually look at each other and think they're not really a chef anymore. We think everyone else is thinking that about us. Um, and that's the trick is getting past that. Honestly, it is hard to, to be away from the kitchen and off the bench. I chopped garlic so much slower than before. I felt like a total goofball this morning because um, I'm sitting in a farm school right now and the chef was kind enough to be like, oh yeah, you can um, chop that garlic for the sausage I'm going to make later. And it was just like, oh, I feel... <sighs> my ego, <laughs> you know, but that's okay. I think um, the sooner we learn to stop evaluating ourselves by the things that we do or have done, uh, the better we are as a society and as a community of professionals moving forward. Uh, but it's hard, man. It is really hard. And sometimes you just realize you have other aspirations. You know, it's really interesting as I get into the Chefs Without Restaurants organization, like I don't know, that might even be my thing, right? Like I moved out of cooking on a daily basis on large production to doing the personal chef thing, which I thought was going to be the rest of my life. But then it's physically hard. You know, it's a lot. And I think maybe I'm not going to be doing the personal chef business until I'm 60. Like, is that sustainable? And I'm already starting to think about like, oh, wow, what is Chefs Without Restaurants? Like we're an organization. We provide, you know, services to consumers looking for chefs. We help people with their marketing. I've got the podcast, like maybe that's the business and I'm just going to be okay with not cooking professionally anymore, you know? And I've come to terms with that. My wife um, is a registered dietitian. She went to Johnson and Wales. She has a culinary degree. She moved out of that. Her next step was getting her um, bachelor's in dietetics and as an RD and a certified diabetes educator, but now she's going for a master's in public health, you know, and she has been fine stepping away from cooking as a chef to, you know, now even potentially moving away from the hospital kind of thing and moving into the public health kind of arena and has been totally fine. She doesn't have any of that, you know, doesn't even care if anyone ever knows she was a chef. She doesn't even tell people she was a chef. Oh, that's really interesting. But yeah, I mean, so I will say this, like, say this, um, the Chefs Without Restaurants business is yours for the next 15 years. And you're like, this is amazing. Look at all of the things that we can do together serving our community. You may find 15 or 16 years from now that your your chapter here is is closing and you're moving on to something else. I think that's the other miss that, that I had. Um, was thinking I was going to pick a career field and then stay there and then somehow just feel feel fulfilled throughout the decades. And honestly, our lives change, our interests change, like you said. And the example of your wife's journey is so perfect because, you know, she went from Johnson and Wales and then went into stage one of her career and then stage two and then she's pursuing stage three. This doesn't mean that she's had 
three disparate careers, it means that her careers and the um, uh, the technical expertise that she has has evolved as she's matured in the industry. And I think that's exactly the same argument I'd give to you. And they build off one another. I mean, she's a better dietitian because she was a chef. Like she understands food in a way a lot of her fellow dietitians don't. The same with me. I don't think I could be a personal chef to the level I am if I wasn't a chef elsewhere first because I learned how to cook a certain style. I could not have started Chefs Without Restaurants without having been a personal chef because it's an offshoot. Like I'm basically teaching other people now how to be personal chefs. So you're just building on these skills. But the other thing is the world changes. You and I are sitting here right now on the internet for a podcast like 10 years, five years ago, that wasn't a thing, right? So like who knows in 10 years what's going to be a thing that we haven't even conceived of yet. So I think just being open to the way the world changes and just kind of going with the flow. Well, and I think you might find more superpowers later on, right? I think we, we again, think that we pop out of school with all of our skill sets set. And that's absolutely not the case. I think we uncover more, we hone more skills, right? But just like a knife that you need to continue sharpening and honing, and sometimes you need a different knife for the different cut you're going for, that's what we are. We're the knives, or we've got our hands on the knives, and we get to choose which tools we're going to present to the world today. So you have a podcast. How long have you had that? And why did you want to start that? So Peas on Moss is four and a half years old. Um, I actually started it when I was working for Lundberg Family Farms and was really developing my identity as a research chef. Um, I had a food scientist that worked for me. We interfaced with a project management team and um I started joining an entrepreneur mentoring group and um, that kind of the, the founder of that mentoring group had a podcast where he just interviewed mentors of his and posted those phone conversations. And I was thinking, I have had a lot of these conversations myself with chefs who have helped me redirect, kind of write my ship a little bit, call my shit out and have me get rid of it. Pardon my French. Um, you know, and, uh, I was like, I, I think this is shareable with other people. So let me try that. When I looked up on Apple Podcasts, um, you know, how many food industry podcasts are out there four and a half years ago, there really weren't very many. Um, so I started Peas on Moss and um, Adam Yee started My Food Job Rocks within a week of each other. And we both happened to be in the same food networking group. I was like, wait, you're starting a food a food podcast? You're starting one? This is amazing. So I had kind of a cohort of my own uh, to go through. And, and um, Adam hustled super hard. Um, he would podcast from nine to midnight every night. And that just wasn't something I was dedicating to it. So his podcast has grown incredibly. And mine, I've chosen to stay as a research chef who's very grassroots, um, who has conversations like yours and mine. And I just post them the way they are, essentially. Um, a couple of editing just in case um, people fall out of their chairs during the podcast. Or I had one guest whose dog came into the room and puked and then walked out. And so we, you know, we cut those things out. But other than that, it's a very uncut conversation that's very raw and honest with each other. Um, it focuses on our careers, our stories. It illustrates how differently all of our paths can be and we can live really successful careers or not hate it, burn it all down and start something else, you know? Yeah, there's so many interesting new voices in food. 
I guess they've always been around, but they haven't had the platform, right? And that's the great thing is the access with this, how easy it is to start a scrappy podcast. So now it's not just the same five people with their views on things. I mean, um, you just talked uh, with me before we went on air about one of your episodes recently with Eric in Seattle. And Eric's one of those people who I see as a, a emerging voice in food and has a lot to say about the things going on right now. And, you know, he's someone who I don't think most people had heard of not that long ago. And now he seems to be on all the food podcasts. He's in Eater and all this stuff. And it's really great to see people like that um, expressing their views on the food world right now. Yeah, he has chosen to um, to really take advantage of the platform that he has right now about, you know, the 15 seconds of fame that he has. And he is choosing to use it in a way to raise up other ships in the sense of how auto incubators is developing other young chefs who are coming up. Um, he's finding ways, even in COVID, to continue getting his chef's uh, products out there. So he has a couple of events coming up that even though he's quote unquote the headliner, the menu has actually been written by other chefs on his team and he talks about them. And I think that's one thing that I'm really impressed with that while he's got the spotlight, he's choosing to use it for collective good. He's also choosing to use it to um, take some shots at household names and well, you know, whether they're in Seattle, chefs that we all know and restaurant groups, we've, a lot of us have worked for who work in Seattle. And he's also taking shots at national stage chefs who uh, he feels have become disconnected with the experience of being in the food industry or who have not lived out the experiences of being a marginalized voice, uh, whether we're a person of color, um, female, you know, whatever those attributes might be. Um, Chef Eric has decided to really amplify those voices. And I really admire that. It's not something that we all have the guts to do. Actually just was in an, in, in, a diversity and inclusion conversation um, that the Riveter hosted, another business that got started in Seattle. It's a um, women in business networking and co-working space uh, that started on Capitol Hill. And um, Amy Nelson has really chosen to amplify the voices of other women in business, entrepreneurs who we, we just don't get the same shot uh, on goal, you know? If, if your, me your measure of success is somewhat related to how many shots you get to take, but if the puck isn't taken to us or if we don't get a shot at the puck or if the puck gets moved away from us when we're staged to shoot, that's baloney. And, um, you know, Amy Nelson and Eric Rivera are choosing to use their platforms to talk about that. And I'm really starting to feel compelled to do so as well. If we're going to change our industry, if we're going to change um, and improve then we need to really take actions to do that and assess your risk. And, and I would say, do what you can, you know, if that's on your podcast, in your kitchen, in the next interview that you um, hire for your next cooks, when you reopen, I would say, look at that, look at what your team looks like and see if there are some gaps that you can deliberately seek to fill. And COVID has exposed a lot of this, right? Like you really saw really quickly who the good people were, who the bad actors were, you know, much based on how they treated their team. And all of this is going to shake out and we're going to kind of see what's left. But yeah, I thought that was a really great conversation. I listened to it uh, a couple of days ago between you and Eric and, you know, his outlook on the restaurant industry is that it's not coming back. It's not going to be the same. Uh, when it comes back, it's going to be totally different. And mm -hmm. it'll be interesting to see where we are with that. 
Yes. And I think it's okay to be sad about some of the components that have been lost, some of the ways that we serve have been lost. And I think it's okay to mourn that. But at some point, we have to stop crying and uh, move on and build it. You know, while we're while we've been kicked, we might as well build it better. Um, this does give an opportunity for um, other people, <laughs> marginalized people who haven't had all the cards dealt to them in a fair way. It gives us all a better shot um, at coming out with a business that is more COVID flexible, if you will, because um, say if everything all disappears in the fall, which scientifically is just not going to happen, but say if it did, we would still have a bit of a lag in getting our industry recovered. And this is an opportunity to rebuild. It's kind of like a tornado coming and taking off your roof. And it's like, well, since we don't have a roof, let's build the second floor. You know, (laughs) it's kind of what I'm thinking. No, definitely. I mean, it's like we, uh, I'm actually having some work done on my house right now and we had a contractor come out and it's the discussion about like, how much do you rehab versus how much do you tear it down and build it better? Like, why are we going to spend thousands of dollars to uh, rehab this deck when for just a little bit more, we could just tear it down and redo it, you know? And it's kind of the same thing. Like, why are we putting band-aids on these things that don't really work? We have the opportunity now, we have the time off, let's just do it the right way right? Instead of kind of like half-assing it. And then we're going to get, it's going to be something else. Let's say COVID magically goes away. We get a vaccine, whatever. There's going to be some other event that's going to happen and we're going to be back there again. So let's just assess it now while we have the opportunity and build it the way it needs to be. And I'm of the belief that a lot of these businesses shouldn't have been open to begin with. Like there's a lot of places that are closing that probably needed to be closed. There was a lot of people who didn't have good business models who weren't running their businesses appropriately. And, you know, I'm sorry to say, like they probably shouldn't be in business and that's okay. And it gives an opportunity for new businesses to emerge. Yeah, I agree with you. And I, I, you know, and I'm sure people ask you this all the time with your background as well. Oh, are you going to open a restaurant someday? And it's like, ha ha ha, no. <laughs> is is my answer. And then, you know, after they, they're done looking affronted, like, well, let me tell you that this industry is very tough. It's tough to get the funding. It's tough to get the right space, your daily overhead before you pay staff other than yourself uh, to come in and cook is, I mean, the operating costs just to have a, a working address are so high, you know, and then you have to think about butts and seats and things like that. There's no way I would want to work through that. Um, I'm going to totally cop out on on trying to start a food business, but there are people who do want to do that, and I don't want to take away from that. But I would say, you know, make sure that you've got the runway to to survive a catastrophic catastrophic event like this, and um, find a way to work within your means, stretch enough, but not so much that you're just totally toast the first time um, the fire gets too hot, you know? And doing like the personal chef, small scale catering kind of things you can do on the side. It's great, easy side money to let you kind of figure out what works and what doesn't work. What's really interesting is so many members of my community, so many guests on the podcast have been people of color, people of different backgrounds and things like that. And a lot of the conversations we have are that they weren't feeling like they were being promoted within their business, that it's it's hard to start your own business, but they started as line cooks and they just didn't see any world where they were going to move up through the ranks, where they were, become sous chefs, 
executive chefs didn't think they'd be able to get the funding to open their restaurant. So duck out early. And a lot of guys in their, you know, like 22, 23, just starting the personal chef thing right off the bat out of culinary school and see that as a more viable option to have a career and have money. Go on Instagram and type in the hashtag like personal chef or private chef. So many of those people, young, African-American, people from different countries. Um, it's just interesting. It tends to not be like white men. It seems to be a whole bunch of other people kind of dominating the personal chef realm. And I think it's great to see them kind of figure out a way to make it work. That's awesome to hear. What a great pivot to still bring your food to the world and um, build a customer base that way. You know, um, something that I think you and I were both commenting on Twitter on is what is the best and what is the worst advice you were given um, in the kitchen. And I, I had shared, um, you know, that you should wait for the promotion or you should just wait around for someone to see how talented you are. And I, I said that that was BS and you should just go for it. And I still stand, um, stand behind that statement. You know, I grew up, my dad was like, work hard, put your head down, you'll get noticed, you know, and that didn't work for me. And it led to years of me being stepped on, taken advantage. And I'm a white man. Like, I can't even imagine being a woman, a person of color, like as a white man with a bachelor's degree, I still feel like I got shit on because like, I'd go to my bosses, I'd say, can I get a raise? Nope, it's not in the budget. Okay, put my head down, work there another two years and just kind of do that. I mean, my last job I was at for 10 years and I feel like I just got taken advantage of and I let them. But, you know, during that time, I got frustrated enough that I was building my exit strategy. I was not going to put up with it. Like something changed in me. I started, you know, reading books, listening to podcasts, a lot of self-motivation kind of stuff. And I just started building a plan and then built my exit strategy. But, you know, my dad worked for the same company for 40 years. And with his good work ethic, he literally walked off the job on his last day. Like that's how it was. Like he just got to this point where like he was taken advantage of for so long, but he was still giving me that advice of like work hard, keep your head down, you know, be afraid of authority. Like your bosses have the final word, you know, don't talk back and like taught me to be very subservient to my bosses. And not that you should be disrespectful, but I think there's a point where you need to speak up for yourself and, you know, be somewhat of a go-getter. So that kind of impeded my progress at a young age, but I'm fortunate that at least age 40, I figured out, you know, how to go for what I wanted. Well, it's not too late. You know, even if you're 99 years old and you're like, okay, I'm finding my voice. Like, cool. You do that. Find your voice now. It's, I'm, I'm so glad that you have identified that, that you don't need to sit around and wait for somebody to open the golden door for you or whatever that means. Um, you know, I know I said that, um, getting into a research chef role, uh, took another research chef introducing me to that. It didn't mean that I was offered a job. It was that somebody blurted out research chef <laughs> and I, I ran with that information. And I think it's our responsibility um, as professionals, wherever you are in your career field, if you're a chef or you would like to be a chef someday to, to take that on. And actually I'm going to go back to the example of Eric Rivera, because when I was in culinary school, he was also in culinary school at a different program. And um, he was in an accelerated program, but he himself accelerated even faster. And so I was asking him how he did that. And he was like, don't wait. Don't wait for the training and the, the curriculum to work its way around to a skill set that you're interested in learning. If you want to learn how to make sausage, go buy a sausage stuffer. And I was like, okay, well, that was okay. But he did. He bought a sausage stuffer. He bought his own sous vide machine. He um, bought the cookbooks and probably nearly burned his house down a couple of times trying to cook these things 
so that he could learn very quickly what his palate was, develop those skills, and then go have the humility enough to go find a mentor who can help again, reset you. So, um, yeah, I would, I would say I'm really sad that we still perpetuate this whole, just wait for somebody to give you a chance attitude. Um, you know, my, for myself, I started in the military and so went to culinary school when I was 27. Um, and so I always felt like I was behind the, the game on that because I was just older than everybody by potentially 10 years. You know, if, if you started at 15, 16 or 17, um, and so I have moved my jobs a lot in the last 10 years to make up for that time. And that was a very deliberate choice that I made for myself. I don't advocate for job hopping per se. They do advocate for advocating for yourself and knowing when you have plateaued at a role. And if you ask for that promotion and they don't give it to you without any good reasons or a personal development, personal development plan, I would build an exit strategy and bounce exactly like you did chef just say okay i know my skills can go further than this and it is your responsibility as a professional to bring the best of you to that and if they won't take the best of you you should go yeah and there's a number of reasons for things like that i think in my position what basically happened is is i was kind of like protecting my general manager like as the executive chef you're the line between and i was good enough that like they needed to keep me around because if i were to leave who knows who would have come in, what would have happened. But, you know, she would even joke like, you're not allowed to quit until I retire. And you hear that as a joke at first. And then you're like, wow, I really think that's true. Like I would apply for other jobs within the company and I wouldn't even get a callback. Like I was with them for 10 years. I was a top performer, amazing reviews every year. And I would apply for jobs within the company and not even get a call for an interview. And it's like, I felt like there was some behind the scenes squashing of that kind of thing. And it just, you know, it, it ended up not being the right place for me, but I built some solid skills, but I was able to grow my business on the side. So I started side hustling and I did it for seven years while I was there and nobody knew. So I had seven years of like runway time to really fine tune my business so that when I left, and it was so funny because everyone's like, you, you're just going to quit. You're just going to start this business. Like nobody knew. One guy knew, my sous chef knew because he found my website. So I was blogging also for seven years. Didn't use my face or name. I, my avatar, if you've ever seen it, was like me holding a raw pig's head in front of my face. Yes. Like I would go to, to Star Chefs conventions in New York City and people would be like, that's what you look like. You always have the pig's head. But I was trying to build this business on the side with nobody knowing that I was trying to, to do it as my exit strategy. Um, so I was like, Oh no, like I've been doing this for seven years. You guys didn't know, like I've got a clientele and a customer base and I'm ready to go. Like I'm booked up for the next two months. So, uh, have a good one. Bravo. Um, man, what a massive loss to that company. I mean, your skill sets, your business acumen, a huge loss. And, and I think for hiring managers who are listening to this, entrepreneurs who might have young up-and-comers, uh, you know, in their team somewhere, don't squash that talent and then lose them. That is lame. <laughs> um, and, but again, bravo to you for recognizing that you needed a different strategy, a different plan, a different runway for yourself, knowing that you had so much more to offer and these people have opted out of it. Like, okay, well, fine. <laughs> and I always encouraged my staff to leave when it was time. I think that's the thing is so many people are are greedy. Like they're afraid to let their people grow. Like I had to have that conversation with a lot of people. Like you've outgrown this place. I've promoted you as far as you can. I think you need to move on. 
You know, it's like, that's, I feel your duty when you see a skill set in these people and having those conversations. Uh, nobody was doing that to me. Nobody was grooming me to move into the next position, but I always did it with my employees. And after I left, I heard some crazy number, like 27 of the kitchen staff left within two months after I left. Uh, and ultimately the general manager left and the district manager has moved on like the whole, so much of the team has moved on. I'm not saying that's just because I left, but hearing that the people directly under me, like when I left, my sous chef left uh, a week after I did. So as soon as I gave notice, he, I gave notice, he came in and sat down with me and said, like, I don't know that I want to stay here when you're not here. And I kind of have an opportunity. What do you think I should do? And like, I wasn't trying to screw them, but I was like, well, you know, like, let's look at it. And I helped him decide and said, I think it's a good opportunity for you if you want to go. And uh, then they weren't happy that I left because they felt like he was leaving with me. And he actually did come and work with me on and off a little bit, you know, because I need help every now and then, but I wasn't poaching staff at all. Yeah, that can always be tough when you have a young up and comer that you want to have, you know, you want to give them opportunities that you've identified through your your new network or your new role. Um, yeah, it's, again, massive loss. It's, it's too bad to hear that the band couldn't keep it together. But that also shows that they clearly had held you back too long, you know, and you weren't able to develop the team bench deep enough that after you left, you know, the, the one guy who could hit more than a base hit <laughs> leaves the team and then the whole team falls apart. I mean, that kind of stinks. Well, I mean, my style is always very collaborative and I felt like I was the only member of the upper management team that was like, I had chefs that worked under me as chefs de cuisine who were older, like in their mid fifties. And they were very like, yes, yeah, chef, no chef where like I was super flexible in the kitchen. Like I let my sous chefs do the specials. I let them do like ordering. I gave them flexibility with things. I gave them leeway to make mistakes. And that was not um, appreciated by my GM by the next in line. So like you've, you've got like chef de cuisines here under me who are very yes, chef, no chef. And then under them, the sous chefs, I'm kind of like teaching them to be free thinkers, even though their direct bosses want them to be like a yes, chef kind of person. And they knew that as soon as I left, it was going to be like back to completely yes, chef, no chef in the kitchen with no flexibility. And that's not how I like to run a kitchen. Like I want it to be part of a creative thinking team. Every day we had lunch together as like a, a supervisor meeting where it was like gloves could come off. Like if you feel like this person fucked you, call them out in the meeting. Let's get it out there. You know, you could say to me, chef, you're being an asshole today. And it, like, it wasn't in a, a disrespectful way. It was just like, sometimes it needs to be said. And that's not how a lot of people are going to allow their kitchens to be run. And I had a feeling it wasn't going to be run that way when I left. So. Yeah. Um, you know, you highlighted some really important things that I just don't want to miss out on. And first is, um, you know, you, you're the executive for a reason you have the skills. So why the hell are you holding back people who could come up and make your job easier? You know, like there's, there's obviously the, the good part of developing the younger person so that they feel empowered, they build a skill and all those things. But frankly, if you don't have to do those things, <laughs> why not farm it out, you know, and, and spend fewer hours doing it yourself. Um, the other is the yes chef mentality and attitude has to go. It has to retire with whoever has got the last of that yes chef mentality. That's not the mentality of the future. It's not um, what's going to take our industry into the next decade or century. You know, 
we need to drop that and look at the talent that's around us, irrespective of their their look and sound, you know, of those people. The good ideas are being missed constantly because we're not listening to the right voices. We're listening to a very homogenous pile of people all the time. And it's like, well, the solution may actually be over here in your dishwasher's mind, but you haven't asked them for their in insight. So it's a big miss if we don't uh, look for those other opportunities, those other viewpoints. Yeah, I've said for a long time, I think there's a lack of mentorship in kitchens and mentors don't always have to be above you in position and they don't have to be older. You know, at this place, I would say one of my cooks, my sous chefs, Mike, was as much of a mentor to me as I was to him. I mean, he was only like three years younger than me and he had more experience working on a line than I did. We had very different experience. So while I was the executive chef, he was really strong in some things and other cooks would kind of razz me and say like, you're the chef. Why are you letting him do this? It's like, well, because he's better at it. Like, why wouldn't I? Like, just because I'm the executive chef does not mean I have all the answers. He's got some amazing recipes. I'm going to let him write the, the menu, bring it to me, make dishes. And if they're good, they'll go on the menu. I don't need to have my name on the menu and have my dishes on the menu if he's the one executing them every night anyway. But, you know, it's just so interesting because so many people in the kitchen were in this mindset of like, I should have been calling all the shots. And it was like, you know, I was his puppet. And it's like, you're being ridiculous. Like, he's just very good at a lot of things and I'm going to let him run with it. As you're saying this, I was like, man, I wish I'd work for a chef like you. <laughs> and I bet a lot of the other people who listen to this podcast are like, yeah, I would have worked for Chris. <laughs> and maybe some of the people who did are like, yep, that's how I want to be. But I've said this on one or two shows. Like, I've also never worked in a real restaurant. Like, and I think that's the difference. Like, I came out of culinary school and I worked in contract food and worked at a retirement community. And then I moved to Seattle and I worked at another retirement community. And then I worked at a hospital as a catering director and I worked at Ikea and then I went back to like long-term care. So I've never worked in a restaurant ever. I did my internship in culinary school in a hotel for three months and I worked in like fast food in high school, but I've never worked in a real restaurant. So I don't have that restaurant style to me. Like everything that I know, I picked up some other way. So I never worked under a yes chef, no chef kind of guy anyway. So that's not how I was going to do it. In fact, most of the time I came in as the boss, like there was an ad, like, do you want to come be the executive chef? It's like, sure. And I would go in and I didn't go in as a sous chef or anything. So just developing my own style. And I never wanted to run a kitchen like that. So I just didn't. That's, that's the crux right there. Right there. I just didn't, <laughs> you know, you get to choose, right? This is, this is your own adventure. And, uh, we can choose to opt in or opt out of it, right? Yeah. So is there anything you want to share with our listeners before we get out of here today? Um, man, that's such a, such a great invitation. I would say, you know, while we're down for the count, if you've been furloughed, if your business is closed or closing, if you're having to close it, if you're thinking about opening your own business, all of those things, I would say, look at your um, skills from uh, the perspective of the customer and the investor and your partner, whether that's your spouse or a business partner, um, really look at yourself from a couple of different angles. But don't forget to look at yourself through the lens of somebody who really admires you, a mentor of yours, you know, channel your grandmother, channel a mentor who was like, yes, go for that. Or look at yourself from the perspective of the chef that you feel you may have conflicted with a lot, but who saw the best in you. And um, give yourself that opportunity to try for something. You never know what could come of it. I always think, well, what's the worst case scenario if you don't go for it? Um, 
and and maybe the worst case scenario is quite bad. So, you know, mitigate those risks. But if it's, um, if the worst case is you don't pursue or you don't, you don't get to do it for very long, then you're in exactly the same place on our couch, then go for it, <laughs> you know, minimize the spend and, uh, and just go. And then I'm always here, you know, Chef Chris, me, there are others um, out there. There are so many more food writers and podcasters out there that can serve as resources, um, sounding boards. We're a small community, man. Like, just don't be a jerk and, uh, you know, do your best. Bring your best and do your best, right? Yeah, I think those are great words. It's uh, great advice for everyone, and I hope people heed it. And um yeah, we'll share this episode far and wide and hopefully they'll get the message, right? And we do really comprehensive show notes. So I'll put all your contact info in there so people can find you and that they can reach out and you guys can continue this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to do so. Um, if you want information about the Research Chefs Association, feel free to ping me. I'll happily share. Um, our 25th anniversary conference is supposed to be in Atlanta next March. And uh, God willing, it will be. Um, otherwise, it'll be virtual and there'll be a lot of high quality education like before. Um, but that community is also really loving, really supportive. Um, I remember the other story about, um, let's see, I think it was about bread. And um, a research chef named Mark Florka, who is a Canadian who trained in Germany and he worked in hotels and restaurants and then eventually got to the research chef world. Um, you know, he said, once a research chef, always a research chef. You don't lose your identity just because you've changed chapters. And um, be proudly who you are with all of the, the bumps and bruises because they're all uniquely yours. And so your voice is uniquely yours. And what you bring to the world is yours. And no one else can do it better than you uh, telling your own story. Well, thanks for coming on the show. I loved having you. I'm glad we could get you on here. And after having talked to you online for so many years to put a video face with the name, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm probably shorter in person than, <laughs> than the camera will show. But thank you, uh, Chris, so much for just inviting me to be part of your platform um, to get to meet you and your guests and um, the rest of your audience as well. Thank you for just giving me the hour and... Um, I just appreciate the opportunity. Um, I can't wait to get you on Peas on Moss. I would love that. I look forward to it. We'll do a little podcast sharing. Woo, sounds great. Well, thanks again. And to all our listeners, this has been the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. As always, you can find us at chefswithoutrestaurants.com.org and on all social media platforms. Thanks so much and have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show or sponsoring a show, please let us know. We can be reached at chefswithoutrestaurants at gmail.com. Thanks so much.